I have a brother, but as we're growing up, he had, uh, you know, he used to have Pokemon sandals. You know, he'd be like five years old. You just said this? Yes. Okay, so my brother, we have this one skateboarding video where my brother's wearing Pokemon sandals but wears socks underneath them, like the tube socks that come up to your, like, your knees. And he has, like, one, he doesn't wear the skateboard helmet. He wears, like, a bicycle helmet. And then he wears, like, a tank top in the middle of December. Like, he was completely out of it. And as my brother's growing up, he always does just weird things. And uh, as we're growing up, we, you know how you always, little brothers and little sisters get the hand-me-down clothes? My brother had a hand-me-down, hand-me-down from my sister, then from me, then to him, this dog sweater. And this dog sweater was so run down. It was like, you know, he was wearing it and he was like three years old, but <laughs> we didn't throw this thing away and had this giant hole exposing his belly, like right here. And he would always wear it. And he'd wear the Pokemon sandals with the socks underneath it. I'm like, Daniel, what are you doing? It's like his favorite sweater. So he would wear it till like the day it like became like, you know, exposing his belly. And uh, I don't know, my brother's just always been funny like that. But in thinking about that, I think about how, how many times we'll take things that we, we find comfort in just simply because we're used to them and we've always been doing them a certain way. So you might have something in your life that you've, you're so used and you're so comfortable to doing that you're not willing to change your routine. Maybe you haven't started your devotions uh, in the morning because you don't want to break that routine of sleep. Or you haven't started journaling because it makes you uncomfortable to try something new. But if you look at the Bible and you look at the, what the Lord commands, anything he commands you to do is never something corny. It's never something that's unfashionable in a way that we would look at it and be like, all right, well, obviously that's stupid. Anything God commands is always for our good. It's like looking at my brother who has a sweater with a hole in his stomach and saying, why are you still wearing that sweater when we could be dressing you in things that will be much more comfortable and definitely more warm? So sometimes when we don't realize that the law is there for good, we'll turn down the law for something else that we're comfortable with and something that we prefer otherwise. So I wanted to just put out there that I'm with you when I say that I think sometimes the laws in the Bible are kind of hard to follow. It's kind of like hard to understand why God writes down some rules. So if you look, especially in Leviticus, you'll hear these things about like, don't mix your garments together and don't eat rabbits when they have hooves and don't eat this and don't eat that, don't do this and don't do that. And you say, well, that's really weird. Why would God command such a thing? And what's funny when you, when you look at that is you find passages in the Bible where David says in Psalm 119 verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And also he says in Psalm 119, verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And when David's saying this, he's talking about the law. He's not talking about New Testament. Like when we look at the Bible and we talk about our favorite passages, is it ever Leviticus? Is it ever Numbers? Someone raise your hand. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Yes, all the way in the back. Jeremiah. Oh, that's, that's a different one. That's good. Anyone else want to share their favorite book? Yes. Psalms. Romans. Isaiah. All books from the New Testament. Exactly what I was saying. <laughs> no. <laughs> but 
very rarely do you have someone say, Leviticus, I love Leviticus, I love the law, and I love all those kooky things that are in there. But David, when he says, oh, how I love your law, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the book of Leviticus. And when's the last time that you looked at the Ten Commandments and you drooled over them? Like David, sweeter to my mouth than honey. And you're like, Ten Commandments, yes. You're like, thou shalt not disobey your father and mother. And you're like, yes, oh my gosh, I just, I love that better than honey. Better than Mellow Mars, that, which are on sale on ShopRite. <laughs> I love Mellow Mars, by the way. No, we don't do that. And it's easy to see in today's culture that we've dismissed the pursuit of holiness. Holiness just simply means following the ways of the Lord and perfecting yourself uh, like God is perfect. You want to be like God. You want to be holy like God. You want to be set apart like God. You want to be good like God. That's what it means to pursue holiness. And some of us dismiss that for a number of reasons. And it's easy to see that in our culture today. You'll, like in your circles, when you're not at church, you'll often hear, why are you, you know, your friend says a word that's controversial. I don't really know the, the controversial words. I'm not going to say it in front of the pulpit. But fill in the blank, a word that you think is controversial. Oh, you can't say that. That's a bad word. And you're like, why, why are you so uptight? That's not a bad word. Even the curse word isn't a bad word. It's only bad in context. You know, people defend those things saying, what am I allowed to do? And you hear a lot, very often you'll hear people say, don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? Doesn't the Bible say, do not judge, therefore do not judge, or ye will be judged, or something like that in Old English? Or people might say, I'm allowed to do whatever I want. I'm allowed to kiss my girlfriend. I'm allowed to hold hands with my girlfriend. And you know, it seems to me, hearing those kinds of things, you look at the Bible, and that sounds a lot like in 1 Corinthians when they said, all things are lawful for me. That was the saying of the day. I can do whatever I want. We have liberty in Christ. We have freedom in Jesus because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, the things that we did wrong. So therefore, I'm free. I'm, I'm not under the law anymore. But when we don't love God's laws, when they're not our meditation throughout the day, when we're not in love with the law, the things that God has given us, we are more susceptible, number one, to follow our own ideas we're more susceptible to follow our own ideas saying, well, I think I can do this. I think I'm allowed to do this, so I'm going to do it. And we're also dismissing a love for Jesus. When you dismiss the love of God's law, you're dismissing a love for Jesus. You can't love Jesus without loving his character. That's like telling your girlfriend that I love everything about you except you. It's like, well, that's kind of weird. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I still love you. I just, I don't like how you do this. I don't like how you do that. I don't like the way you look. You, you name all these things about them that you hate, and yet you still say that you love them. In the same way, when you dismiss Jesus' character, it's kind of hard to see how you could love him. A.W. Tozer says, in the church, many, many are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. If you don't like what I'm saying, I want to ask you something. Think about the company you run with. What do they talk about most? God and the love of God or other things? And only you can decide that. Here's a question for you today. When, when you're with your friends, what do you talk about most? Is it the things of this world and the love of those things? Is it about football and how you have to be at the football game on Sunday night? Or is it about the things of God? 
We're not saying that the things of this world are always sinful because we know that the things of this world are just taking God's good things and twisting it, using it in a different way in which it wasn't supposed to be used. So let's look at the biblical account of when Saul chose to follow his fleshly desires rather than follow the Lord's commands. It's 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. That was the command to go out. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim and 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, go depart, get down from the from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came, out of, came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is the east of Egypt. He took, also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So Saul had been given a command to obey the Lord, and yet he did not fully obey it. Notice what happened. He was given the command, destroy everything. And the things that looked good to him, he said, I'm going to, I don't think the Lord really meant everything, so I'm going to get rid of only the things that look bad, only the things that are deserving to be destroyed. Why is it that we pick and choose the commands of the Bible that we want to follow? Why is it that you and I, when we're reading the Bible, we'll read passages like flee youthful lusts in 1 Timothy, and we'll automatically conclude that has nothing to do with what we look at when we watch YouTube videos. You know, I was, I was just on YouTube the other day, and most of the videos I look up when it says related videos, they're all like apologetics things because that's all I watch besides, I watch two things on the internet, apologetics videos and climbing videos. Those are the only two real things. So I don't really have related posts that are like disgusting and stuff, but I forgot what I was looking up, but it was something, it was something normal. I, oh, I know what it was. It was one of those funny prank videos. It was like, it's Japanese prank and Japanese pranks are the funniest things ever, especially on YouTube. And the related videos were just like, it was, it was pretty crazy to see the amount of, um, I mean, how bad it's gotten in just a few years. So how loose they are and how, how these things, you know, you're covering your hand over the screen. You're like, wow, this is pretty bad. It was never like this a couple years ago. And sometimes we feel like these commands that we read in the Bible have nothing to do with our life. So we'll pick and choose the commands that we want to follow. And I want to ask you, why? Why is that? Why is it that we can say, I'm allowed to do this, I'm allowed to look at that, I'm allowed to go here, I'm allowed to watch this rated R movie, or I'm allowed to listen to this uh, rap artist, or I'm allowed to do whatever I want because we're under liberty from Christ. Because Christ has died for those sins, I can once again go back to that sin. 
like a dog returns to its vomit. Why are we allowed to go back to our sins once we have claimed that we have been set free from those things? Well, I'm going to give you five reasons tonight in the text, five reasons why Christians avoid holiness. Five reasons why Christians avoid holiness. Number one, we believe that all sins are equal in God's sight. Number one, the number one reason why Christians avoid holiness today, I believe, is because we don't have any differentiation between sins. We think that all sins are equal in God's sight. R.C. Sproul says the idea of gradation of sin is important for us to keep in mind so we understand the difference between sin and gross sin. Now let me unpack that for you. Let me break it down. Because you've probably heard today that, well, after all, sin is sin. All sin is the same. I can't judge that murderer because, you know, I sin too. And sometimes it'll come off really offensive to the people that are sinners because there's no differentiation between the types of sin. Like, well, you know, that person's gay and, well, there's murderers out there too. So God can forgive anybody. And we just offend that person completely. You're saying I'm a murderer? Like, well, God can forgive murderers and all sin is the same in God's eyes. So, yeah. You know, we're offending people because we don't see the differences between sin and gross sin. Well, let me give you some biblical support for what I'm saying here so you don't just like say, wait, what are the ramifications of what Alan just told me? Matthew 10, 15 says, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. He says there's differentiations between types of judgment for people that commit different sins. And if you look at the entire Mosaic law, the entire Bible, really, you see that with certain sins, harsher punishment is given than for other sins that have less punishment. And for God to equate all sin as the same is to say that Hitler is going to get the exact same punishment as someone that just rejected God throughout their life but didn't really kill anyone, didn't any, hurt anyone. They're going to get the exact same punishment in hell. And for God to do that minimizes God's goodness. It minimizes also his judgment and his justice. Kevin DeYoung says, when every, sin is sin, when every sin is seen as the same, we are less likely to fight any sins at all. Why should I stop sleeping with my girlfriend when there will be still lust in my heart? Why pursue holiness when even one sin in my life means I'm Osama bin Laden in God's eyes? When we, cannot, when we can no longer see the different gradations among sin and sinners and sinful nations, we have not succeeded in respecting our own badness. We've cheapened God's goodness. You see, when we look at all sin as the same, why should you ever pursue holiness? Why should you want to be more like God? Because there's always going to be sin in your heart. And if there's always sin in your heart, you're just as bad as that murderer. And you're just as bad as that person that's giving in to their sin. So we have this mistaken notion in our day and culture, and I think most of us think this. I used to teach this too, that all sin is the same in God's eyes. And when we look at it that way, we're missing out at the pursuit of holiness is something that's actually possible for those that are in Jesus. Now you might think of an objection. You might say, well, Alan, what about when Jesus says to the person, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you hate in your heart, you've already committed murder. What about that? Isn't God saying that all sin is the same? 
Well, I'd say to you in response to that, that Jesus' point wasn't to say that all sins are equal. It was to say that all people are sinners. He was talking to the Pharisees that believed they were blameless. They didn't have any sin at all. And his point wasn't to show that all sins were equal and deserve equal punishment, but rather that all, all people are sinners. Second point, second reason why Christians avoid holiness today. Look at verse 9. Paul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, fatlings, the lamb, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. Sin looks good in our eyes. That's number two. We don't pursue holiness because sin looks good in our eyes. We actually enjoy sin. But of course, we don't call it sin. We call it other titles, right? Instead of laziness, instead of sloth, sometimes we'll keep the King James Version of the sin so that we feel like we're not committing it, right? Yeah, I don't do sloth. I'm just relaxing. I just need a day off. I just need to rest my mind. I need to veg out. Instead of saying that we're filling our mind with garbage and setting our eyes on earthly things, we'll say, well, it's art. I must expose myself to, you know, today's culture and music and movies and reading literature. I must expose myself to these things so that I'm exposed to the arts and know what's, you know, what's popular today. Instead of sexual immorality, we'll give it new words. We'll say, well, it's, it's dating. That's what people that date do. Dating's not in the Bible. It's a modern invention to say that you're dating. In the Bible, it's like you're friends and then you get married. The end. You're like, what? Well, how do you make the transition from friend to marriage? It's like, well, what were you expecting to do before you get married? You have to be friends with the person. Really? Yeah. Maybe you think, well, Alan, hold on. What are you saying here? Are you saying that? These things are bad. Are you saying that I shouldn't date anyone? Are you saying that I shouldn't watch these movies? I'm not saying that necessarily. But I think sometimes we let sin remain because it feels good or because we feel like we at least got rid of most of it. You know, like, well, I I got rid of all the bad sins and so I can indulge in this. You know, we're not making out. You know, we're not having sex. So I can at least do this. And I think the interesting thing is sometimes... You know, we'll look at um, certain no-nos. Like, I know a lot of Christian people vow never to make out and never do that. But at the same time, and with that same standard, you'll pay money to go watch a movie where people do do that. They'll say, well, I won't partake in those sins, but you'll watch a movie where people do curse and people do smoke weed and do those things. It's kind of like going up to a beach and handing someone 10 bucks and like, can I watch you and your girlfriend make out? You know, I'll pull out a chair. I'll get out some popcorn. I'll just watch you guys. It'd be really creepy. So what's the difference between doing that and then going to a movie? Maybe because we feel distant from those things. Maybe because we feel like it's out there, like it's not real. And if it's not real, then it's not really a sin either. So you might be saying, well, Alan, hold on. You're talking about borderline issues that aren't even covered in the Bible. All those things, dating and then all those things, that's not in the Bible. Did God really say that you can't smoke weed or that you can't drink alcohol? Did God really say that you shouldn't make out? You know what that sounds like to me? Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? That's what it sounds like to me. Genesis 3.1. It sounds like the oldest lie of all time. Satan himself asking, did God really say that? 
Psalm 84 verse 11 gives us the hope, which shows us the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I think it's the biggest lie of all time to believe that God is holding out on us. Sometimes we'll, we'll think that, well, if only I indulge in this thing, then I'll still be, you know, I'll still engage in pleasure. I'll still get joy and I can enjoy God too. It doesn't work that way. You realize whenever we're following our own desires, our fleshly nature, it's always going to rob us in the end. Sin is always going to rob you. It's always going to leave you empty. When you follow Jesus, that's how you really find true meaning, true purpose, true joy. And to even leave a little bit of sin is to deprive you of the fuller joy. Because God's ways are not our ways. And the Lord will not withhold anything, no good thing, from those that walk uprightly. Matthew 19 verse 29 says, And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. You know what Jesus just said? He says, whatever you give up in this life, whether it be father or brother or sisters or children, I know a lot of you gave up your kids for Jesus. But he says, you're going to get that much more, a hundredfold in this life. And also, you'll get eternal life. You got nothing to lose. So why are we holding on saying, no, I can't let go of this. No, I, you know, I'll just, I'll compromise and I'll be as pure as possible. But, you know, I want to at least do a little bit or I want to be able to do what I want to do because I have Christian liberties. I want to do these things. You realize that you're robbing yourself of the joy of the Lord that God wants to give you. It's not like God's like, well, I want to hold out on them. I want them to just be bored for the rest of their life. And then in heaven, they'll just be even more bored because, you know, they'll play a harp and just be like this timeless state where you're just like, you're standing there, you're singing worship songs for the rest of eternity. It's not like that. I'm telling you right now, it's not like that. And some of us might fear that heaven's going to be so boring because what are you going to do? You just sing songs? I can't even sing. It's not like that. God is the author of joy. So don't you think he has something better planned for you than what you could think of of yourself with your imperfect mind? I think so. So don't forget, the problem isn't necessarily that our desires are too strong. Because some of us might feel like we have to repress these desires and say, oh, well, you know, that's bad. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to lust. I don't want to, you know, watch these things. I don't want to have the desires to, to go after these things. And we'll repress them. But don't forget, it's not that your desires are too strong. It's we're forgetting that sin is a distortion of the perfect things God has given us. Those desires in and of themselves are not evil. We can take those desires and use them in an evil way. But those desires were initially given by God. And it's us that have taken them and say, well, I have to look to imperfect means to satisfy those desires. That longing in your heart when you want someone to be close with, when you want to do something, when you want fame, when you want success, those desires were put in your heart by God who says, now look for me. Look for me to fulfill those desires. Because I'll give you much more than anything the world can give you. Sin takes good things and uses them improperly. So God blesses us with wealth and it becomes greed. God gives us sex and it becomes fornication. Sex outside of marriage. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory says, If we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too weak, or not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That leads us to our third reason why Christians avoid holiness. Let's look at verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? I'm going to steal that and say that in everyday life. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the Lord spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Or the people, rather. The people have spared. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet. Or in our words, Shut up. And I'll tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? But Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Third reason why we avoid holiness is because we believe that holiness isn't attainable. In verse 17, we saw that Samuel says, I know that you don't look at yourself with a lot of self-esteem. I know that you don't think very highly of yourself, but hasn't the Lord called you? I know that you don't think that you're that great and you can do these things, but hasn't the Lord called you? The enemy, you see, succeeds when he minimizes our effectiveness. Satan succeeds against us when he minimizes how much you can be used. Your effectiveness. 1 Timothy 2, 20-21 says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You see, God wants to use each and every one of you. Everyone look up here. God wants to use each and every one of you for specific work. And that's why he commands us to be holy. That's why he wants us to remain pure, because when you are in that respect towards him, when you are becoming more like him, you can be used in greater capacity. And any, the, the biggest thing that Sam would love to do is to ruin your life so that you can't be useful for anyone. He wants us to be prodigals, wasting our lives, our, our entire uh, life on this earth, just wasted, getting drunk, having sex, you know, totally wasting all of our money, being like the the prodigal son that left his house and he spent all that he had. He was eating with the pigs and finally he came back and said, Father, I I just hope that you'll let me in. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, 
yet so as through fire. Basically what that word, that verse means is that you can still go to heaven and have your life wasted. You could be a prodigal that starts off saying, I want to follow God. High school years, college years, up till you're 70 years old, you waste your life. Still go to heaven, but you wasted your life. And I think that's what the enemy wants to do in, in our youth group and in the U.S. and entire world is ruin your effectiveness so you have no impact on the world. But God wants to make you a vessel for honor, not for dishonor. And how many of those people are there that have been abstaining from those things, that want to be holy, that want to be useful for the Lord? Do you know that if you've asked the Lord to be your Savior, He has called you on a mission? If you, have, if you are here today and you ask Jesus to come in your heart, the Lord has called you. Romans 8, 28 through 29 talks about all things work together for good that to those who love God. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. So his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God called you. You have been called to a mission by God. And so it is your responsibility to fulfill that call. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When you present your entire life to God as holy, you say, Lord, here I am. Take my life. You'll receive in return everything you could ever want and that much more and eternal life. It may not be what you expect, but it's the only thing that will ever make you happy. The question arises, though, is it even possible to really be holy in God's sight? You might have heard that verse, and you, you, you think for a second, wait, doesn't the Bible say that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags? I said righteousnesses because that's what King James says. Isaiah 64, verse 6, But we are, an, we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We fade as a leaf, and our, all our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. We've heard that verse before used in a context like this. No matter what you do, all the things that you can do and all your righteousness and everything you can do for the Lord is still like a filthy rag to the Lord. And the Lord looks at it and says, ha, still tainted with sin. But to clarify that misconception, that's not what it's talking about. And in fact, that chapter of Isaiah is talking about a people, Israel, that were pretending. They weren't really giving a sacrifice with their whole heart and with their whole mind and their whole strength. They were doing something with a smoke screen, a smoke screen in front of it saying, here's my righteousness, here's everything I'm doing for you, but not really. It was just an outward display, but it wasn't really the desire of the heart. First Corinthians six eleven says, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So if you have asked Jesus to come in your life, you are clean. You are justified. It is possible to be holy. I mean, think about it. We call God our Heavenly Father. What kind of father says to his child, like, you know, he's looking at a painting. You know, imagine like a three-year-old brother or sister's making this painting of the whole family. They always do that in Sunday school and stuff. Like, look, Daddy, it's me, and that one's you. He's like, this is worthless in my sight. It's like filthy rags before me. He wouldn't say that. You'd be the most messed up dad ever. 
I mean, can you imagine a daughter's knitting a scarf? Like, I can't wait to give this to Daddy. Daddy, here you go. It's a scarf. Filthy rags before me. Be messed up. Be a messed up dad. To say that holiness is not possible is to look down upon the passage of the Bible that say, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? I'm not going to respond until you respond. It was counted to him as what? Thank you. Romans 4, chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. Romans 8, 37 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So if holiness is possible, how does that practically work out? How do you obtain that holiness? Horatius Bonar said, Holiness is not measured by one great heroic act or mighty martyrdom. It is of small things that a great life is made up. Some of us might feel like in order to be holy, I have to do one thing for God. I have to do something. My life has to lead up or what is my calling? What does God want me to do? And we figure it's like a job or it's like an event in our life that it leads up to. Like your entire life leads up to this one point in which you say, yes, I have attained. I have been called for this one moment. But in reality, a life of holiness means a lot of little things that add up to a life of holiness. A lot of abstaining, a lot of keeping yourself pure and saying, Lord, May my entire life be a sacrifice to you. Fourth reason why people do not pursue holiness is in verse 23 through 23. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Number four reason is we justify our disobedience. We justify our disobedience. How many of us use rationality in order to justify when we're allowed to sin? We say, well, well, I'm sure the Lord would allow this. You might say that with your parents, right? Oh, I'm sure they'll be okay with it. I can use it for him. Some of us actually want to take our sins and say, well, I, I know this is an exception, but this is, this is an exception to the case. Like, I know the rule is you're not allowed to date an unbeliever, but if I date the guy from one direction, I can bring him to God and the entire world can be saved through music. Some of us feel like that. You evangelate because you feel like you're going to have an impact on that person. They're like, well, they need me. They don't need you. I'm sorry. No one is that important that they really need you just saying or maybe sometimes you'll think well I I know that I'm not supposed to lie but it's a white lie it's okay like I know a very practical example is when a person says oh so I've been going through this tough time oh yeah I've been praying for you you like forget to pray for that person yeah I've been praying for you day and night because you figure it'll make them feel better in the end if you just lie and tell them so it's a white lie I'm sure you can think of others in first Corinthians chapter 6 Paul talks about this saying that was going around because the Corinthians were justifying their sin. You know what they were actually doing? They were going to prostitutes in the temples and saying, well, you know what? The food's for stomach. The food's for stomach? The stomach's for food and the food is for the stomach. Well, that was their saying anyway. And they said, so obviously in the same way your body is made for sex and you you need to do just like with food. You need to go and please yourself sometimes. So that's what they actually did to rationalize how they could Stay in church and at the same time go to 
uh, the prostitutes in the pagan temples. And Paul addresses this and says, no, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And sometimes we'll, we'll actually rationalize saying, I'm allowed to get away with this just because, you know, it's not really that big of an issue. And I think in our today, in, in our culture today, some of us have actually taken for granted saying, well, you know, everyone struggles with sexual immorality, so I have to check out this girl because everyone does. All my friends do. You may be a guy today here, and then you think, well, just because everyone struggles with porn, then it's okay if I do too, because it's un an understood thing that everyone does. And that's not the way that it should be. Paul says the body is not for sexual immorality. C.S. Lewis had a very funny analogy talking about how our culture is so enwrapped with uh, sexual immorality that it's just become okay. And he makes fun of strip teases and uh, going to those kinds of things by saying, imagine you could fill a theater simply by placing a covered plate in the middle of the theater. And then as people fill the seats and the lights went out, and then slowly the covers lifted, and then there's a piece of bacon or a mutton chop underneath, and everyone, oh, yes! Wouldn't you think that there's something horribly wrong with their appetite for food in that country? But in the same way, we've taken this thing of sex and we've brought it to a level that it should not be. If there's an alien country looking at us, they'd say, wow, there's something wrong with these people. That was his point. But God's commands bring us true joy. Any underhanded, any underhanded methods that we could bring in order to please ourselves will just be taken away from God's perfect plan. Anything you could say, you say, well, I can rationalize this away or I can do this, is taken away from God's perfect plan. And that's why it says in verse 23, stubbornness is as an iniquity and idolatry because it's the idolatry of self, saying that your way is better than God's ways and you know what to do in order to obtain joy, but in reality, you don't apart from God. Leads us to the final point. In verse 24, and I'll summarize the rest of it, it says, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for now I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I fear the people, and I obey their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So, everyone look up here. So I'll just summarize the rest. So Samuel tells, you, tells Saul that, God has renounced him as king. Saul's distraught. He's like, no, Samuel. Samuel's walking away. He's like, done, Saul. He walks away, and, and Saul jumps in and grabs his robe, and then his robe tears apart from him, and then Samuel's like, yes. And the Lord, in this example, is, this is a prophecy saying that the Lord has ripped away your kingdom as well. And Saul's like, no. So Saul's very disappointed. And that's basically what happens at the end. And then Samuel uh, killed Agag at the end of the chapter. The final point is that we fear people more than God. Final reason why we don't pursue holiness is that we fear people more than God. We're at an apologetics conference we had a year ago, two years ago, and there was this couple that was sitting in the seat in front of me, and they were doing some inappropriate touching, but no one else noticed. It was only because I was in the prime position sitting behind them that I could notice what they were doing. And the whole time, I was just mad. I was like, they're at an apologetics conference. 
How could they be doing this? You know, it was grossing me out. I was like, what do I do? So then after we had a break, I got up. I just looked them in the eyes. Like, I looked at the judge like, hi, guys. God sees. And I walked away. <laughs> it was great. He was just like, and then I noticed there was distance when the break was over. It was good. I always want to be that person, you know. Some of us fear what people think more than what God thinks. And so we'll be modest in church and behave differently in front of other people. And we'll live a double life, in other words, outside of church. Some of you will use certain language in church and certain language when you're with your friends. Or you'll do things when you're with your girlfriend or boyfriend, but you wouldn't do it in front of your parents. That'd be really awkward. But we're doing them right in front of God's eyes all the time. Where's the accountability in that? Why do we need accountability partners if we realize that God is right next to us all the time? It's because we forget he's there and we fear what people think more than what God thinks. Most of us here today aren't afraid of what God would say to us. The consequences if only God knows and only God sees what I am doing when I sin before him. You're more afraid of what would my parents think if they found out? What would my friends think if they found out? You fear your friends more than you fear what God thinks. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, do, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And some of us mistreat our bodies, misuse them, because we don't realize what we're doing to them. We don't realize that our body is not our own. It's Christ's. What he's literally saying here is to these people, the Corinthians, they were going to these temples with the prostitutes. And he's saying, when you're going and you're sleeping with that woman, you're taking, to, you're taking Christ to bed with you. That's how strong his language was. Don't you realize what you're doing? And most of us don't realize what we're doing when we sin against the Lord. It's not funny, Logan. When we live double lives, it proves who we really value and worship the most. When we're one way in church and when we're one way outside of church, it proves who we really care about. You don't care about God. You care about what your parents think. You don't care about God. You care about what your friends think. And that's why we act differently. And so Saul lost sight of holiness and he lost sight of his usefulness. In disregarding holiness, in disregarding what the Lord thinks, he cared more about what the people thought. He lost his usefulness. And from that point, the Lord took away his kingdom. But the encouragement I have for you today is you can overcome. That's what I'm going to say in conclusion to you this evening. You don't have to feel like it's never possible for you to be holy. Because you can. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. I just love that phrase. Gird up the loins. Or lions, CCS lions. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the rev revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. God wouldn't ask you to do something that's impossible. He's saying, be holy for I am holy. For it's in holiness that you find true meaning, true purpose, true joy. 
You're not going to find it if we're looking for things in ourselves, in our flesh. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. The Lord's looking saying, who is going to be holy? Who is going to be blameless? Who is going to seek after me with all of their heart? He's looking because there's not many people out there. And then we'll see great people used in mighty ways of the Lord and say, wow, it'd be great to be that person. Too bad I can't be that person. That's not true. You don't have to do one heroic act. You don't have to do one thing that's amazing and dazzling. You just have to keep yourself holy and blameless in the things that you do, the tiny little things. Your friends might make fun of you. They might think that you're goody two-shoes or you're a dork. I got made fun of because I didn't do things that my friends wanted to do. My friends wanted to smoke cigars, and I was like, well, it's not technically a sin, but I don't want anything to do with that. My friends wanted to drink, and I was like, well, I don't want to drink because it's stupid. What's the reason for drinking other than, well, I'm a Christian, and I have liberty, so I can drink. It's stupid. I want to do whatever the Lord wants me to do. I don't know if that's your heart, but that's my heart. And I think if you take that stance, I don't always fall after that, but I think if we take that stance saying, I want to be holy for God is holy, we can see the Lord take us because he's looking for us, those that will be blameless, and he's going to pour out his spirit on those who are passionately pursuing him. The Lord's waiting to pour out his spirit saying, who's going to be that person that's blameless? Who's going to be that one that's pure? Anyone can be impure. Anyone can defile themselves in a matter of minutes. But one that is holy, one that is blameless, takes a lifetime to cultivate that kind of relationship with God. So we cannot love God. We cannot say we love God without loving his character. You cannot pursue Jesus. You can't call yourself a Christian without also pursuing his character. And it's in pursuing his character, though we may fall, though we may sin, it's those people that say, I hate the sin. I hate that part about me. I want to run after Christ that God sees and says, yes, I want to pour out my spirit on you. I want to give you strong support. Although you're not perfect now, it is possible for you to be holy in my sight. Just as it was for Abraham and Moses and David and Job and all these people in the Bible that weren't perfect in their conduct, but they wanted to pursue passionately after God. I'm going to close with this quote so everyone pay attention. It's by A.W. Tozer. When I read this, I felt like it spoke directly like from A.W. Tozer's grave. I quote him a lot recently, but let me just read it to you. It says, everyone has a private battle going on, a private fight. You are in the midst of a wicked and adulterous generation, but you have got to overcome. He who overcame indicates that you also can overcome, but he indicates that not all do. You can overcome your flesh, which will be the hardest. You can overcome tradition and custom, which will be the second hardest. You can overcome all things. The world is waiting to hear an authentic voice, a voice from God, not an echo of what others are doing and saying, but an authentic voice. The Lord is waiting for that person that's going to say, I'm ready. I'm, I want to be holy and blameless before the Lord. He's waiting. Someone to proclaim that authentic voice from heaven. Not an echo, not a copy, not something where we're saying, oh yeah, well, I'm religious and I'm going to have this experience. We work it in ourselves to say, I'm going to have to have an emotional high when I'm doing worship and I have to have an emotional high when I'm doing these things. 
not something we conjure up, but something that God puts in us and says, here's my spirit. Now go pour it out. Now be used. He's waiting for those people. And the question is, are you ready to take that commitment and say, you know what? It'll be hard, but I'm ready to be holy for my God is holy and I love his character. Let's pray.